he was old. He was an old, old buck. I remember when I saw him in my binoculars, he just looked rough. You know, his fur was all messed up, you know, and his big old body. He was with about a 194 point. I didn't even look at that other buck. I mean, just for a second to see what he was. This buck was so wide. It's the widest one I've ever seen. Rockcast is powered by Onyx Hunt, and for good reason. Onyx Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a Rockcast promo code. Hello, Rockcast world. This is Shining Face, your faithful host today. Uh, you should have heard from the Bearded Wonder last episode. He'd been missing in action for a while. That always happens when he gets a new toy. Uh, this time, it was the Adams Adapter that he helped design for the side-by-side -side application of the Swarovski STC compact spotters. Yep, that's two compact spotter straight spotters bolted together to be used as binoculars. Matt and I talked about them briefly on an episode or two back. And uh, they, uh, this, is, this is nothing new. Uh, this happened with the ATSs years back. Uh, different companies were building brackets. And as long as you could afford two spotting scopes, you could bolt them together and have super binoculars. And then Swarovski came out with their BTX, and uh, that kind of answered that. Although the BTX may have been a little bit heavier. I really can't remember, but that's what I got. Uh, but Travis got the bright idea of doing it with their con compact spotters. You know, the ATC, we've talked about it a lot on here, how well it performed. The STC performs just as well. And so Travis worked with uh, Adam's adapter and they came up with a bracket and he's had them for a few weeks. That's why he disappeared. And uh, we're we're going to get them in Matt's hands for a full review. There are some limitations to them. You have to have uh, at least a 2.5 inch, I think it's interpupillary distance, the distance between your eyes to be able to use them because um, otherwise they touch and you can't quite get your field of view. Uh, but Travis and a lot of the guys that have looked through them haven't had a problem. So as long as Matt doesn't have a pencil head, he should be able to give us a good review. Watch for that. Um, if you want to see them in action, you can just go to our optics forum and look at the top of the uh, optics forum on Rockslide under STC Big Eyes. Uh, that's Travis's thread on there. Um, I will I wanted to note some, something on earlier episodes, I had mistakenly called the straight compact spotter the CTC. That's my bad. Um, the CTC is their collapsible spotter, their pyroscope, the one that I used for years. If you've been around Rockslide for a long time, Ryan threw a lot of shade my way because I was using what he called the pyroscope. It's actually extends and collapses and it makes it for a, a super compact spotter for a 75 millimeter spotter. It, it's, it's the best performing optic per ounce out there. Now they're, they're ATCs and, and they're uh, ATSs and STSs and all, you know, all those other things. They, they, they do resolve better. They do have an edge on them, but at a weight penalty. So anyways, I got those mixed up. The STC is the straight compact spotter. The CTC is the pyroscope. I don't even think they're available in America anymore. They're real popular in Europe still. Um, let's see. I just got my Zeiss 10x40s SFLs back from Jay Nichols, uh, the Mindful Hunter. Uh, he lives in Canada, so it took a little, little while to get him back across the border. 
Uh, if you didn't see his YouTube review, I mentioned a few episodes back, go check it out. He found pretty much the same thing I did in that Zeiss 10 by 40 SFL binocular, a lot of value in a compact binocular. So, uh, let's see. <clears throat> and speaking of beards, um, I did try to grow a beard in January and I got thinking about Travis's, uh, glassing power and how he spots all these animals. And, and I got thinking, you know, he, maybe he's like Samson in the Bible, you know, all his strength was in his hair. Maybe Travis's glassing power is in his beard. So I thought, man, I'm, I'm going to give it a shot. I've tried to grow a beard before. Um, so I gave it a shot. I took a week off of shaving. And um, after a week of trying, uh, two red hairs finally popped out on the right side of my chin and a short cluster of gray ones on my neck, just like all the other times I've tried. So I just gave up, shaved them off. Must be my low T. Let's see for the, uh, we're going to do hunting big mule deer today. Haven't read from the book for a while. Um, but before we get into that, there was just a few things I wanted to cover. I was really glad to see this week that the Colorado issue of banning mountain lion hunting made it all the way to the big dog podcast of them all, the Joe Rogan experience. I saw it on Instagram. I didn't, I didn't listen to the whole podcast, but I saw the excerpt from the podcast where him and Cam Haynes were talking about it and, uh, and Steve Rinella as well. And I, I'm just so glad to see these big platforms get behind these conservation issues. Uh, we need to unite hunters. We can't break off into our little factions anymore. That's why the antis are so powerful because they're all on the same page. And I can't say that about hunters. Every, you know, everybody's picking on everybody, it seems like. And uh, to hear hear Rogan and Haynes and Ranella talking about it, I thought, well, good for you guys. And I, I encourage anybody with a big platform out there, any platform, to get behind this issue and uh, the Coloradans for responsible wildlife management. We had Dan Gates on uh, January 1st this year, and also Howl for Wildlife. We had those guys on last fall. They're out there doing God's work in the hunting industry. They're fighting for our hunting rights, and we need to get behind them. So if you have a platform, get educated on the issues and get people pumped to support it. They can support it with time, money, uh, but we need to get the word out. We need to beat this Colorado issue because if we don't, they're not going to stop. But if we do, we have the chance to set them back 20 years. I saw that happen in Idaho when we beat the bear baiting ban. They picked up their marbles. They went home. We've hardly heard from them since. Uh, maybe we will again, but uh, but I, the only way to beat, beat these antis is we got to all stay on the same page and support these issues. So good on uh, Joe Rogan and those guys getting that out there. I also uh, noticed, I don't know if it was the same issue, it was a different clip, but I heard uh, uh, Cam Haynes talking about gripping grins on social media and being really careful with them. And I was glad to hear him talk about that. You know, gripping grins have been around for Ever. I mean, that was some of the pictures that got me excited about hunting as a young man, you know, looking at outdoor life and, you know, seeing these guys with, you know, big old bucks and bulls and all that stuff. And I didn't used to think a lot about it, but there was no social media then. Those magazines just went to hunters, you know, it's hard to offend a hunter, although very possible. Uh, but anyways, uh, so 
But as social media has gotten big, and I think a lot of people don't realize social media is is a mixed audience. You know, it's not just your followers that see your pictures. And I wrote about this in my last book uh, in the chapter called uh, Leaving It Better Than We Found It. We've got to be careful what we post. And I never want to apologize for being a hunter. I never want to apologize for 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 killing an animal that I use for food. Um, the antlers are just a bonus. I've always talked about that. Um I never want to apologize for that, but you do have to be careful who you show it to. And uh, not not everybody understands what we do. So to hear Cam Haynes talking about it, making sure people are talking about, you know, the, the whole entire process and, 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 you know, the entire hunt, the research, the scouting, the, the, the beautiful scenery we get to engage in and – the meat, a lot of people, I have seen this many, many times. I may have talked about it on the podcast before. I was at, this was back in 98. I went to a um, a wildlife seminar in Montana. It was hosted by a bunch of biologists and I can't even remember how I got invited, but I, I got there. And there were some other state agency people there. And, and, and there was a lady with a guy there. I don't even remember what he did. Um, he must not have been a biologist. Um, you know, there was media there and that kind of stuff. And there was somebody giving a talk about big buck hunting. And of course, we're all enthralled by it. It was awesome. And, and when, when he got done talking about it, uh, this lady raised her hand and, and, and she, I don't remember how she asked it, but she was wondering if we just left the meat in the woods. And of course, we all looked at each other like, what? Where did she get that? Of course, we don't leave the, leave it in the woods. And I remember the guy saying, oh, no, that's like chocolate candy. We wouldn't leave that in the woods. And she was just like visibly relieved, you know. But it made me realize, wow, a lot of people don't understand what we do. And so remember, if you're throwing a grip and grim up on uh, uh, social media, not everybody's going to understand that. And that, that's, what, that's what the antis are doing in Colorado. They're trying to use the word trophy to, to push forward this agenda on lions that they're only trophies and they're just wasted by hunters. You know, they're going to try to apply it to deer and elk. And, and yes, people do eat cats. Uh, but anyways, we got to be real careful with that. And that's why if, if you go through my books, you'll see the word trophy appear very little. I'm, I'm always careful with it because it's, it's not a well-understood word. Hunters understand it, but non-hunters don't. So, um, so good on Cam for kind of clarifying that. And, um, you know, I, I don't think he was saying, hey, never post a grip and grin, but he was just saying, you know, make, make that less of the content and more of, of about what we do. And, and I agree with him. Uh, we got to be careful. Um, and on that same note, I've noticed in, in, on Rock Slide, you've heard Sam talking on our Tipsy Tuesdays about entering our best hunt photos contest. We have one for all the big game. Um, and I think, I think we're going on like seven or eight years of, of these. And I've watched them evolve over that time. And there's been a decline in grip and grim images entered and also making the finalists and also winning. And that that's not by design. Um, you know, more, more non-traditional, non-grip and grip in, images are winning now. Um, and, and, a lot of people just, just so you know how we, we do our photo contests is I think some people think the staff, you know, gets together and it's the buddy system and we pick people we like. No, that ain't even how it works at all. Uh, the, the Rockslide staff is spread out all over the country from West Virginia to California. We have a private staff forum and we, um, I, I, I put, I, I 
I put out the link on the photo contest once they're closed, and I tell the staff, I invite all the staff, get on there and pick your up to 10 favorite photos. And we don't collaborate on that. You know, they all do it on their own, and then then they 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 enter their their picks, and then about the only collaboration we do is narrowing it down to 10. And we don't even do that unless there's a tie. A lot of times, you know, if it's pretty clear on who the 10 are, I I run the contest. I just get on there and 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 post them to the voting thread where the members then get to pick. And it's always a mix of, you know, some gripping grins, some as they lay photos and, you know, there's getting to be different ones in there. There was a guy with a drone shot this year or some guys cleaning an elk. That was very memorable. Um, but anyways, I've just noticed over the years, the members who, who ultimately picked the winners have been picking less and less grip and grins. And, and for example, this year uh, in, in the whitetail contest, it it's still on right now. It's still going. The members are still voting on it. It's the last one of the year we vote on because whitetail seasons typically run into January in a big part of the country. And so when I checked before going on to this episode, the leading image, the one with the most votes is not a gripping grin. It is a, um, and, and as, as he lays photo, there's not even a hunter in the photo. It's just the deer. And uh, the whitetail contest, for whatever reason, we get a lot more gripping grins it entered in it. And I, I think maybe it's because whitetail hunters hunt on flat ground. They don't have big, beautiful images and scenery behind them. And so, you know, they, they, they gravitate more towards a gripping grin, but there's still a lot of them that get entered that are not gripping grins. And, uh, so, so that if the contest ended today, a grip and grin would not even win in the white whitetail contest. That whitetail contest is sponsored by first light, by the way. Uh, let's see, but it was the same. I just went and looked. Um, the mule deer, the elk, and the sheep—they're all—they're all over now. The members have voted, and we've picked our winners. And not a single grip and grim placed in the top three of of any of those. The the mule deer contest sponsored by Cryptek. Um, first three places were non traditional uh, images. Um, I'm trying to think here. They didn't even have a hunter in them. If they did, it was less emphasis on the hunter. I can't remember. I see so many images. Same with the sheep. Um, the same guy, uh, congratulations, B. Reynolds uh, on Rockslide. Uh, he, he got two sheep this year and uh, both those images took first and second. He's not even in them. I don't even know what he looks like. Um, it was just pictures of the sheep in great country. Uh, same with the elk. Um, the there was a photo, I believe, with the hunter in there, but it was a pack out photo. Um, so anyways, I think people are just looking for something different is what it really gets down to. Um, and, you know, they're all dead animals. You still got to be careful what you post on social media. You really do. Um, and, you know, be, be, be careful. You know, your, your, your aunt's friend who also follows her Instagram just might see uh, your photo on there. And if she doesn't understand hunting, you know, you're making an enemy for hunting. So be careful with that stuff. But it's kind of cool to see, you know, alternative images coming up like what we're seeing in uh, on the Rockside Photo Contest. Okay, let's see. Um, before we jump into hunting big mule deer, I've got my winter issue of the Mule Deer Foundation magazine here. And I've, I've, I'm a lifetime member of Mule Deer Foundation. I believe in what they do. And, uh, you know, they're really 
out there fighting for us and we need to support them. But I've always talked about, you know, their, their yearly membership, it's under 40 bucks and you get four issues of their magazine uh, per year, you know, a bunch of other benefits. Uh, it's just the benefit of knowing you're helping mule deer to me is the biggest one. And, uh, but as part of that, just base membership, uh, you get this magazine. And so I, it's been out for a little bit, but I finally got it open the last couple of days. And, uh, I just wanted to hit some highlights in it. I won't take very long on this, but just some of the highlights so you can see what, what the magazine's all about. And you might consider joining the mule deer foundation. Uh, at the beginning of the magazine, they have a little tribute to miles Moretti. Uh, he led the Mule Deer Foundation for 14 years, uh, from 2006, I think through 2020. Well, we lost him in September. Um, um, he died and, um, I just, I wanted along with the Mule Deer Foundation to just recognize his service to Mule Deer. He did a good job, uh, uh running the organization and supporting Mule Deer and, um, hate to see him go. And, uh, he was actually, uh, the guy that, um, Got one of the guys that got me the okay to speak at the expo uh, my first time in 2019, along with, you know, Mark Smith. But, you know, this, Miles had to sign off on it, along with uh, 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 Mr. Crow. I think his name's Ray Crow. And uh, I always appreciate those guys for that opportunity. I met many of you out there at that seminar. Uh, so anyways, um, hate to see him go. He did, us, he did us a good job while he was there. And... There's always a section in here about about caring for meat, and um, I believe it's always um, hosted by John McGannon. I've talked about him on my uh, on the podcast before. I've had him in my second book. Um, he's a wild game chef and uh, trained in uh, world class restaurants. Um, I've gone to his seminars. In fact, he was at Expo as well. Um, always does a great seminar. If you see him on the agenda, go. He's the one that taught me about uh, uh, the right way to dry age venison. And so when you hear me talking about dry aging venison for 21 to 28 days uh, and getting super tender meat, super flavorable meat, it was uh, John McGannon that taught me that. And uh, he's got a section in there on meat preservation, uh, talking about everything from, you know, how to defrost meat, proper labeling, selecting a freezer, um, wrapping. But I wanted to just read a short segment here on from one of his tips and tactics, because a lot of people don't realize this, that, that just taking your meat out of the freezer, especially burger, and laying it on the counter actual, to unthaw actually impacts its quality in a negative way. A lot of people don't even think about that. Unthawing slowly is how you do it. And this is how the, the, the world-class restaurants do it. So I'm just going to read just a short paragraph from here. Uh, and, and then if you want more information, you know, look, sign up for the Mule Deer Foundation, uh, sponsor them, you'll get the magazine, or you can go to John McGannon's site. I believe it's wildeats.com. But anyways, this is what he says. Here's what happens to a frozen piece of meat as it sits on your countertop. The difference between a freezer, 10 degrees Fahrenheit or less, and the countertop, 70 degrees Fahrenheit, is substantial, at least in the world of moisture molecules. Every piece of meat has these little cells that hold in its natural moisture. Upon freezing, these cells expand just like a balloon that has blown up, as that has been blown up. As they expand, the outer cell wall becomes very fragile. 
When they go from a 10 degree freezer to a 70 degree countertop, it defrosts so quickly that the stretched cells remain stretched. The internal moisture defrosts and the thin cellular structure can't hold its own weight and bursts. This is where that pool of mystery liquid comes from that's sitting on your plate platter. So he goes into more of it right there, but, but there's your tip. Unthaw your meat in the refrigerator. Give yourself a, 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 it only takes an extra day usually. Uh, and, and you'll have better meat. And I really noticed it with my burger because I used to get this gray mystery liquid that he's talking about. He's not talking about the blood. You're still going to have some blood, but, um, it would like dilute the blood and it was kind of gray. Um, that's your flavor leaking out of, out of your meat. And so, uh, remember that and, uh, always defrost in the fridge. It'll improve your meat experience. Okay. Let's see. Jumping ahead here. What else I got? Uh, they, they do different state spotlights and the way the Mule Deer Foundation works, there's the national organization and then you've got your state chapters um, and the state chapters, I think they're called chapters. And um, um, they, 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 they are more in tune with what's going, in, going on in that state. They can, they can set up the projects. They can see where the need is, you know, get the money funneled to the right directions. And so I like to always go in and just see what's going on in the states. Description will provide way more value than the $100 annual fee will cost you. And that's before you apply the 20% Rockcast promo code. You'll use Onyx on every hunt, every planning session, and now save money with exclusive deals on gear from the industry's best. Onyx Elite also includes application and draw odds tools, educational resources for all species, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage and now Canada. Onyx Hunt Elite is trusted by millions. Onyx has also released new features to help make hunters more successful. Already known for nationwide public and private land ownership and being a fully functional GPS without service, Onyx Hunt has just released new aerial imagery options like Leaf Off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic look back and imagery on demand. On top of that, Onyx is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your Hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in Dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates Onyx has for this hunting season. So try Onyx Hunt for free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com and use promo code ROCKCAST for 20% off your new Onyx Hunt membership. And just let me tell you something, you guys. Sometimes you might like, oh man, this stuff's so boring and uh, do we have to talk about conservation all the time? This, this stuff helps you become a better deer hunter. And I'll, and I'll give you an example. Hmm, Colorado went to limited licenses in 99. Somewhere around that time in probably whatever the Mule Deer publication was then, because it was a conservation magazine that I read it in. And I read others, you know, I really can't remember. It was a long time ago. But they talked about a controlled burn on a piece of state land. It was just some obscure sidebar in an article. And, and it was just talking about how it had overgrown with oak brush. It was um, critical. It wasn't critical winter range, but it was on the migration corridor and they wanted to open it up. So they did a controlled burn. It was on one section, 640 acres was all they burned. But it just stuck in my head because I was interested in hunting that unit. And I thought, well, I'll go check that out. And uh, lo and behold, 
within a year or two, I had a license there and it had probably been a couple of years since they had burned it. And uh, I, I went and checked it out and it was a, it was a piece of public ground next to a piece of private ground. And I didn't have uh, permission for the private. I tried to get it, but I couldn't. Um, but the public ground, it was right on the migration route. I ended up getting a crack at one of the best bucks I've ever had a crack at that I didn't get on that little 640 acres where they had done that controlled burn. Um, I just missed him. I've, I've missed my share of big deer. Um, uh, this was before rangefinders. This was in 96. Maybe they were out there, but I didn't have one. I shot him for four. He ended up being well over 450. And, um, and I don't know where I hit. I never wounded him or anything. Then there was two of us shooting at him and we never, we never touched hide nor hair of him. This was a buck that was probably a booner frame. Now he wouldn't net Boone and Crockett, uh, because he had too many cheaters. Yeah. That kind of buck, probably a 210 buck by the time you added up his cheaters. I still remember my friend, um, who was a good deer hunter, his name's Kevin, he was in my first book, saying, man, that buck was five inches past his ears on both sides to his frame, not including the cheaters. This was a mid-30s buck. It was a big, big deer, and we just blew it. But had I not read that article in that conservation mag, whatever it was, I may never have found that place. And in 2000, that was in 96, in 2001, I killed a 208 inch buck on that same little 640 acres. So it's worth paying attention to the stuff. It really is. You can pick up uh, tips in here that you might not get anywhere else. So let's check out the state spotlight for Idaho. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there was uh, just, uh, just a few paragraphs here on some things that they're doing. Mule Deer Foundation of Idaho has been busy this fall with multiple projects helping to ensure the conservation of mule deer in our great state. From multiple planting projects spanning from Arco to Boise to tearing down old unmaintained fences, MDF is proud to be leading the charge to help mule deer populations bounce back from last year's hard winter. We planted over 240,000 seedlings in October. These plants will grow and seed new plants, creating better mule deer habitat and improving landscape. Jesse Shallow, Idaho Cooperative Wildlife Biologist for the Mule Deer Foundation, explained the importance of this at the Craters of the Moon site in October. This was the fire that happened around 2015 and burned every sagebrush plant in site. Sagebrush was the dominant ecosystem out there. It was the natural system. That is why sage grouse, mule deer, and pronghorn do well there. A sagebrush on its own takes up to 500 years to come back. If it burned too hot, it may never come back. What we see that did come back is rabbit brush that does well with disturbance and is native, so we are glad we have that. It holds the soil down. Following up with more information about the project at hand, saying aerial seeding can see anywhere from 1% to 5% success rate. What Mule Deer Foundation is doing is hand planting. These plants are grown in a nursery throughout the winter, and with our crew, we have about 80% success, basically speeding up what would have taken about 500 years for restoration. Speaking on the impact of the absence of this important plant in the area, without sagebrush, you won't get the ecosystem, you won't get the shade cover out here mule deer, pronghorn, and sage grouse all have to have, as well as a vital part of their diets. 
Fire restoration projects like these planting initiatives have been utilized in three large locations in Idaho. Lands impacted include, include where the Pony Fire, Laidlaw Fire, and the Soda Fire ravish natural ecosystems. In the Lemhi Valley, MDF also helped to curb the impact of the cheatgrass, a non-native invasive species that contains little to no nutrient value for wildlife and overruns important native species, grazing and migration lands. But by spraying these plants via helicopter, we can help slow down or stop the spread of cheatgrass. We also remove miles of unmaintained or downed barbed wire fence in the Lemhi Valley, as well as installing wildlife-friendly fencing at Hope Rock Ranch. The article continues, I'll stop there, but that just gives you a little idea of some of the good that the Mule Deer Foundation is out there doing. They also have a state spotlight on Utah in there. Um, ah, just jumping ahead here. Um, they always have news from the field and these are their, their, their state chapters. And this just like Sam's tipsy Tuesday, just, just quick hitting little bullet points on things that are going on. Uh, for example, in Arizona, the San Francisco peaks project began in 2019 with support from the department of the interior secretarial order 3362. Since 2019, a total of 87 mule deer and 24 pronghorn have been collared for this project. The goal of this collaring effort was to continue long-term monitoring and documentation of important mule deer, pronghorn, and elk migration corridors between the Grand Canyon and Prescott. Collar data show areas of high, medium, and low use, and as such, we can use this info to help inform mule deer foundation decisions on where we focus habitat work and money. Uh, their, their regional director there is John Gebhardt. And uh, let's see, they got, I mean, they've got ones in here for Montana, Minnesota, North Dakota. Did you know there's mule deer in Minnesota? I think those are our farthest uh, east mule deer. Uh, let's see, Nebraska, South Dakota. Uh, let's see, Casey Nordine is the uh, regional director there. And it says, MDF of South Dakota spent three days in September working along the U.S. Forest Service Northern Hills Ranger District, installing dozens of beaver dam analogs as part of the Silver Creek Riparian Restoration Project. A special thank you goes out to South Dakota State Chair Arden Peterson and Dakota Gray Ghost Committee member Reed Rasmussen for making the long drive across the state to volunteer for this labor-intensive project. Uh, they they mentioned beavers in there. A lot of guys don't realize the um, the, the positive impact that that beaver dams have on mule deer habitat. This is in the literature out there and anywhere that, uh, that beavers decline, um, they're no longer taking out that underbrush, you lose that plant vitality. So, uh, beavers are a good thing and it's good to see the mule deer uh, foundation, these chapters getting in and improving these areas. So anyways, I won't go on and on, but there's all kinds of good stuff in these mags, uh, for the conservation minded. There's always some member stories in there, some, uh, recipes, wild game care, all the stuff that I mentioned today. You can expect that for your uh, under 40 bucks a year. And uh, like I said, you'll feel good that you're out helping mule deer. So we're going to jump into hunting big mule deer. On the January 15th episode, uh, we started into the techniques. The first half of the book is all the research and history and all that stuff. But the last half of, of the book are the nine techniques that I think every mule deer hunter has to have in their toolbox. And um, today's, uh, the first one we did, if you missed that episode, go back and listen to it. It was identifying buck country. That That's really important. And I call it a technique because if you don't know what kind of, the country to look in, uh, you're, you're going to waste a lot of days. 
Today's chapter is on moving in deer country. I thought about this one a lot and I decided it's a technique. Um, moving in deer country, I think is a technique because we do so much of it, um, moving from place to place in deer country. And I'm not talking about still hunting. That's another technique. We'll get into that a few chapters down the road, but because when you're in deer country, a lot of times you don't know where the deer are, you end up moving through a lot of country without really paying attention to what you're doing. You can't still hunt it. You'd never get anywhere. You know, I only want to still hunt in places I know my chances are high of running into a buck, but I may have to jump over a ridge to go to a different glassing point, or, you know, maybe I'm traveling in the morning in the dark and, and to get to a place to hunt. And when I'm done, I walk back to camp, walk back to the horses. Well, all of that movement matters. And I've killed bucks on accident just because I was moving carefully in deer country. So that's how I'll frame it. I'll jump into the chapter here and uh, uh, explain more. But this is our chapter, Moving in Deer Country. I left my backcountry camp on my saddle horse rain one October morning in the pitch dark. The country I wanted to hunt was nearly two hours away. I had to be there by first light or the bucks would be in the timber before I could cover all the country I needed to. Two hours later, I was shivering as I climbed off rain. I, I tied her a few hundred yards back in the timber and on the opposite side of the mountain from where I planned to hunt. A lone horse tends to whinny, which would alert every buck with an earshot. The sky was bright in the east by now, and I could see a few hundred yards. I pussyfooted out to a sharp ridge that overlooked a small brushy basin where I'd seen a few bucks over the years. It was a relatively small place covering maybe 30 acres of mountainside. There was better buck country about a half mile further up the mountain, but I've learned that when moving in deer country, you need to approach all likely areas with caution and in silence. That means traveling on foot and moving slowly. Riding a clomping saddle horse close to where bucks might be is about as smart as sighting in your rifle on opening morning at sunrise. I slowly made my way along the ridge, glassing into the occasional openings in the brush below. Snow had fallen about a week before, and what remained was frozen and very crunchy, slowing me down even more. I really wanted to hurry, as I didn't expect to see a buck in this place, and I wanted to get to the country further up the mountain before the sun had been up too long. But I've learned the hard way not to rush, so I stuck to my slow pace. It was October 29th, and I expected the bigger bucks to be near the does around daylight. When I spotted a small group of does at the bottom of the basin, my heart raced a little faster. I sat in the frozen snow and started glassing. The does were about 500 jars out in a brushy draw. Suddenly, at the head of the draw, I saw a glimpse of heavy antlers with a few cheaters. I recognized those antlers as belonging to a buck that I'd passed up earlier in the fall. Because the season closed in a few days, he was now looking pretty good. I wanted to get closer, but with all the crunchy snow and a herd of does in sight, I knew I couldn't. I tried to lie down, but the vegetation in front of me blocked my view. I'd have to shoot from a sitting position, so I tied a rope around my knees to steady myself for a shot that would be well over 400 yards. It took nearly five minutes for the buck to clear the brush where I could get a shot. He was leaving the does and headed for the timber at a fast walk. Putting the crosshairs on his shoulder, I waited for him to stop. Not 20 years from the trees, he did. I struggled to steady the crosshairs as I squeezed the trigger. He went down, but was back up in an instant. I fired again just as he reached the timber. This time he went down and stayed down. 
Making my way down slope to him, I found he was indeed the buck I'd passed up earlier in the year after tracking him up a steep ridge less than a mile from here. He was huge in the body and his antlers were heavy and tall with a few extra points. Had I not been moving quietly and carefully, I never would have seen that buck. He or the does would have heard my approach and darted into the cover. By the grace of God, I've hunted mule deer every year, save one, since about 1977. Those thousands of days spent in deer country have taught me one important lesson. A human moving at normal pace is completely foreign to the rhythm of the forest. Mule deer, the most keen of animals, can pick us out like a tuba in the rose parade. Our very mannerisms, how we walk, turn our heads, swing our arms, and even breathe, are like big warning signs to older, experienced mule deer. It's my opinion that older bucks rarely stray from the cover in most hunted units, and to kill them, you have to get closer. To get closer, you have to overcome their incredible, but vulnerable, visual and auditory senses. You have to learn how to move undetected in mule deer country. How you move actually is a technique, and thus it's in this section of the book. Every other technique I write about is affected by how you move. If you don't believe that, Go to the forest and pay little attention to how you move and see how many big bucks you kill. It won't be many. Still hunting, covered in a later chapter, relies heavily on how you move, but it's a technique in and of itself. When still hunting, you focus on small pieces of cover and country known to hold bucks. However, there will be a lot of country you'll move through without still hunting, either because you're not sure there are bucks there or because you're headed for somewhere you think is better. I've killed a fair number of big deer in unlikely country that I wasn't necessarily still hunting, but I was moving carefully enough to get the drop on a big buck before he could get away. Now, you might be yawning at the thought of a chapter on how to move in mule deer country. 30 years ago, I would have too. However, with thousands of days, hundreds of spook bucks, and dozens of big dead bucks under my belt, I know better. How you move will determine your deadliness. I'm type A personality. I was diagnosed hyperactive child, the term used before ADHD, and still live life at a whirlwind pace. For me to slow down in mule deer country has been a 25-year endeavor and I'm still learning. Writing this, I took a stroll back in my mind over the last 20 seasons. In just a few minutes, I remembered at least a dozen great to giant bucks that got away because I moved too fast, including one Idaho buck, a 35-inch heavy monster that I had at less than 50 yards. Most of these bucks were within 100 yards and would have been chip shots had I moved slower. I've got a long way to go. However, I'm confident, if only because of my failures, that I can help you kill more big deer by convincing you to move slower in mule deer country. A mule deer's vision is designed to see movement. A human has a 180-degree field of view. With a mule deer's 310-degree field of view, there is only a small slot behind their heads where they can't see. However, they struggle to identify stationary objects, especially if the object is obscured and not skylined. That is the chink in their armor. Their hearing is also incredible and greatly underestimated by hunters. Cup your hands behind your ears and notice how much sound is magnified. Now imagine if you had their funnel-shaped 9-inch ears swiveling in every direction like some radar station. Deer can also hear at a much wider frequency than humans. They react to noise we aren't even aware of, especially high-frequency noise like a metal zipper touching against a rifle barrel. The only way to overcome their senses is to move slowly. I've spent years trying to figure out how much movement I can get away with around mule deer. My conclusion, not very much. If you are in open country, moving more than 100 yards per hour, 
0.06 miles per hour is a dead giveaway to mule deer within 200 yards. If you can see the deer and time your movement right, you can move a little faster, but not much. If you're in thick cover, you have to be closer to 50 yards an hour, 0.03 miles per hour. These paces are painstakingly tough to maintain. I have to be confident I'm near deer to keep this pace, and is why I pay close attention to tracks and try to hunt areas I know very well. Then I know where I have to move slowly and where I don't. The speed of body movement, not just walking speed, must also be controlled. In civilization, if we hear a sound, we turn our heads towards it. In deer country, that simple movement done at normal speed can alert deer. Even bringing your binoculars to your eyes at normal speed is enough to spook nearby deer. I could go on, but you should be getting the point. You must control all, all body movements in the arms, torso, and head, both to overcome their visual sense for movement and to make less noise. By moving slowly, you are much better able to control sound. Most of us only worry about breaking sticks, kicking rocks, and wearing quiet clothing, but you have to be even more careful. Your arms brushing against your torso from your throat from your frozen pant cups touching each other, your weapon contacting small branches, coughing, spitting, sniffing, everything has to be considered. Slow movement lessens the frequency and intensity of unwanted sounds. Mule deer are specifically and intimately familiar with all the normal sounds of safety in their environment, and a zipper clanging on a rifle barrel is not one of those sounds. By controlling your sounds, bucks can become vulnerable. I've hunted with and studied quite a few very good deer hunters in my life. While they all had their own hunting styles, I've learned the same thing from all of them. Hunt slow. While each of these men and one woman taught me bookfuls, my best teacher has actually been my quarry. Older, experienced mule deer bucks. Study these masters of movement, and I guarantee your mule deer game will improve dramatically. Except for a few days in the peak of the rut, or if he's spooked, a big buck will move very deliberately. Before moving, he'll thoroughly survey his surroundings. Once everything looks safe, he'll walk a few steps, stop for a second to a few minutes, and repeat the whole cycle again. This is why he rarely walks into danger. He's very aware of his surroundings. Watch a bachelor herd of bucks feeding. You'll notice the older bucks move less and move more slowly than their younger, less experienced counterparts. What you're witnessing is the fact that older, bigger bucks move very deliberately. We must imitate them if we want to kill more big mule deer. Here are some situations where we spook bucks. You've glassed quietly for two hours with no luck. You stand up quickly and saunter over to your pack leaned against a tree and start rifling through it. Any big buck that drifted into range while you were glassing will easily pick out that ruckus and simply fade back into the cover, often without you ever knowing he was there. Rather, stand up slowly and don't take any steps. Survey your surroundings, both with the naked eye, wide-angle view, and with your binoculars. Then slowly walk to your pack and try not to make any unnecessary noise. You've just invested two hours into the perfect ambush situation. Don't screw it up now. You and your buddy are pulling the steepest hill of the hunt. It's so steep you've forgotten all about being quiet and just want to survive so you can get to the top. You sound like a rutting rhino as you step over brush, kick rocks, and poke fun at your chubby buddy falling behind. Every buck within a half a mile can hear this fiasco, and it will put them on high alert. Big bucks are rarely where we think they are, and that's why we need to hunt quietly anytime we are in deer country. Always give yourself more time to reach your destination so you're not forced to walk quickly and noisily, especially if no one else is spooking the deer.
I've killed several good bucks in surprise places I was only walking through to get where I thought I should be. I was still moving carefully, though, so I was able to put one in the boiler room before they made their escape. Many hunters walk into deer country falsely thinking that if they spook a big buck, he'll expose himself and the hunter can shoot him. That era ended about 1965. A big mule deer buck, when spooked, will put every bush, tree, rock, and terrain feature between himself and a hunter in a matter of seconds as he makes his escape. If you're hunting for a big mule deer by just walking through deer country, give up while you still have knee cartilage left. Few big bucks fall for that trick. I don't want to sound like I'm some phantom drifting undetected like smoke amongst the forest creatures. I'm a bumbling human being who also has a hard time leaving the pace of life behind. But sometimes, some days, I hit it just right, often for reasons I can't explain. My brain and body begin to work together in a calmness that allows me to move very slowly and quietly, just like big bucks move. While I don't kill a big deer every time I move slowly, I've killed virtually all of my big deer when I'm moving slowly. You will too. You can't just show up in deer country and live the pace of life like we do in civilization. You should move in a way that you see deer before they detect you Detect you virtually every time. Next time you're around deer, any deer, slow down everything. I think you'll begin to see what I mean. Them, You cherish them, and now it's time to protect them. This is the Mule Deer Foundation. Our mission is the conservation of mule deer, black-tailed deer, and their habitats, the heart and soul of the West. Join the herd today and help us preserve the legacy of these majestic creatures for generations to come. Your membership supports essential conservation projects, research initiatives, and educational programs that secure a future for mule deer and black-tailed deer. Our deer, our heritage, our responsibility. Don't just witness their journey, be a part of it. Join the herd. Together, we can make a difference. Visit muledeer.org today. So there you go, people. I hope that's not a, a lot of ado about nothing. It's worked for me. And as I was reading that, and I, and I mentioned that I thought back over those 20 years and how many big bucks had gotten away because of noise and not moving slow enough. And I mentioned that one that was at 50 yards. That was an archery buck on a late archery hunt. One of the few big bucks I actually got close to on a, on a late archery hunt. And I had glassed from across a canyon. There was actually a road right in the bottom of the canyon. And, when, and this canyon is not very, I mean, if it would have been a rifle hunt, I probably could have, he was probably four or 500 yards away, but he was rutting a doe and he was in some really heavy service berry brush, which is tall, taller than a human. And all I could see was that it was a good buck. I was bow hunting, wasn't super picky. And, um, he was rutting a doe. I kept seeing her come out in the open, but he would stay back in the brush like the big ones do. And I finally just, he just quit moving. I didn't see him anymore. I, I didn't know if he laid down. I didn't know if he was holding perfectly still. So I, I dropped off of the hillside I was on, <laughs> went down, walked across the road and then climbed the hillside he was on. And, you know, I tried to make a circle and get downwind from him, you know, all that stuff. I did all that stuff right, in fact. But um, as I got over close to where he was, if I remember right, I I 
I, I knew where he was and I wasn't surprised when I got over there. Like I knew I was in the right spot and you know, I'm glassing down in there and I'm not seeing him. I'm glassing under all the brush. I'm not seeing him. I can see does moving around and you know, I'm, I'm long archery range now, like long, long archery range, like 90 yards, hundred yards. And I just kept working my way in and I was going pretty slow, but this is before I learned a lot of this stuff. You got to go like uber slow when that's going on. I mean, you might be able to take a couple of quick steps if, if the deer, like if the doe was running around making noise and looking the other way, but I just didn't, I just wasn't careful. I just was not careful. And, and I, and I moved too fast and he was right underneath me. Those does were out past where he was and he had bedded down and I saw him actually laying down, uh, looking away from me. I almost had a chance to get I think I had an arrow knocked or I had a chance to get an arrow knocked. And, um, you know, for, for like two seconds, I thought, oh, I, I got this buck in his bed. I'm going to get a shot. But he had already seen me and he just held tight for a few extra seconds to just see if I was going to go away or, you know, I don't know what they think, but sometimes they just hold still. And he blew out of that bed, you know, less than 50 yards. If I had just been moving a tiny bit slower, he was so zeroed in on those does, you know, he let me get to that yardage. And, you know, there was a really good chance if I'd have seen him first, not been moving so fast, um, that I could, I could have just waited. He could have got out of bed and give me a uh, a broadside shot. There was another buck, a high country buck. Year this is in '94, and it's the widest buck I have ever seen in my life. I figure this buck was probably 37 or 38 inches wide. He wasn't a great scoring buck because um, his main beam came out, and instead of forking into four, you know, main beam, and then you know, G2, G3, G4, um, he just had a G2. And it wasn't even that tall. It was a funky rack. And then his left side or his other side, I can't remember if right or left. It was a long time ago. Um, was like pretty normal. Like, you know, would have, would, have, would have been a good scoring buck. He was old. He was an old, old buck. I remember when I saw him in my binoculars, he just looked rough. You know, his fur was all messed up, you know, and his big old body. He was with about a 194 point. I didn't even look at that other buck. I mean, just for a second to see what he was. This buck was so wide. It's the widest one I've ever seen. And um, they 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 were, this was about three or four o'clock in the afternoon. And I was just trudging through the forest and came out on a little rim and 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 they didn't luckily they didn't see me. And they they were switching beds about four o'clock in the afternoon. They moved across a little, just a small basin. And um, I got to look at him for quite a while, probably 30 seconds to a minute, too far to shoot at. You know, this is back in the day where 500 yards was, you know, unattainable. You just didn't even try it if on, on a moving deer. And, um, they walked into a little, uh, patch of, 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 of snow stunted spruce. And I just remember thinking that is such a big wide deer. I don't care if he doesn't score, you know, you would, nobody would let this deer go. Um, and so I made a loop and, 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 and got up above him and I had to go through a lot of like a boulder field. It, it took a while, like maybe they were 500 yards away and I had to make a 500 yard loop, 
you know, it, it still took like an hour and a half, you know, it wasn't like he was a mile away or anything like that. It just took a long time to get around him. And I was a little bit tired as I got up above him, you know, and I hadn't seen him for a long time since they went in that spruce. And, you know, of course, in my mind back then, I'm always thinking, oh, they just kept going, you know, they're not there anymore, you know, like you always do. Always assume they're probably right there. You know, they don't just, they don't just run all over the place. So I, kind of come out on some other ledges above him. There were ledges below him. That's where I spotted him from. I got around above him. There was some ledges above him. Really, really rocky. Um, and sometimes really rocky ground is pretty quiet because you're stepping from rock to rock. Um, and so I work my way down off of these ledges and, you know, I'm glassing down below me and I'm thinking, man, they, they got to be right here. They got to be within... 100, 150 yards, you know, there it was pretty sparse spruce. There was not a lot of places for them to go. So even if I had the wrong clump of spruce, there, there was only three or four places. And so, you know, I'm moving along glassing and, you know, by the step, I'm just convincing myself more and more that they're gone. And uh, this is middle of the season. Nobody's around. You know, I got these bucks to myself. And I'm trying to step through through some of that. Um, snow stunted spruce, wind stunted spruce, I call it. It's because when it grows at high elevation, like the snow crushes it down, the wind's blowing all the time. It never gets very big, but it's, there's a lot of tangles in it. So I'm, I'm in one trying to kind of peek out of it and I kind of get my feet stuck in, in some of the branches, you know, and instead of being careful, you know, I just kind of tear my feet apart, you know, and, and then I took a sidestep and right as I took a sidestep, I had a clear view down the hill that I hadn't seen before. There's that big four point land there. And, and he spun his, spun his head and looked back at me, he was facing away, spun his head, looked back at me just right as I stepped around that bush. And he was not having it. That was just, that was just too much movement, too much noise. Um, and I couldn't even have shot him. He got out of his bed so fast. I mean, he just leaped 20 feet down the hill and he kind of disappeared over a lip, you know, and I got, so when I shoot my old Seiko, you know, it was 10 and a half pounds. You kind of had to have a lead on that gun to get it to your shoulder. You needed some extra time. It was so heavy. So I get my gun up and, you know, to try to get on him. You know, I don't even know what I'm thinking. Just shoot any buck now. I've blown it and he's gone. And I, I can't see him, but I hear uh, crashing in a different direction than the way he went. He went straight off of the hill and over to the right, I can hear some other crashing and think that must be that other buck. And so I stepped out where I had a little, little more view because I was still kind of stuck in the spruce there. And here's that great big wide buck. And and when I, when I said ledges, there was ledges all the way down that, that hill, just, just the way they were like little 20 foot ledges. And then they would grow that spruce and they would bed in them. And, um, and then, you know, the, the ledge might, kind of peter off into the next one. Maybe there was some, some green there they could feed on. It wasn't just cliffs, but you know, kind of ledges. So he's running along that, that ledge and I threw my gun up and missed him, uh, shot behind him. If I remember right. And, and, and I remember for years, I played that shot in my head. <laughs> this is embarrassing to say, but I, I don't remember if I even had the crosshairs on that buck. I remember finally admitting it to myself. Were, were you even aiming or did you just shoot? But I shot behind him. I remember, you know, seeing the bullet ricochet in the rocks behind him. And and he just turned. So he's running to my right. He just made a hard left and jumped off of that ledge. That was the last I saw of him was going through the air. And I, and I heard him hit down below. Of course, I'm trying to get another shot at him, just like I read in that chapter right there. They know how to put terrain 
between themselves and you. They just know. They just know. They live in that up and down train for a reason. I could probably hear him for 10 more seconds, and I never got a shot at him. And I went down there, and that buck had literally jumped off. Just imagine an eight-foot wall, kind of like your wall in your house. He had jumped off of something at least that big. And 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 he had landed in some scree down below it. <clears throat> and remember, I could still see the impact mark in the scree. There was no dirt. You know, he lit in the scree. You could just see where he just like pushed up a bunch of scree there. And... um and then tore down off the hill. And, you know, I, 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 I ended up hunting this buck for like another week and um, followed down off the hill, found his tracks, big old, look like pancakes. I mean, just, just a big, big deer. Um, you know, I gave him a couple days off. I ended the season up there. I probably hunted him. That was the middle of the season. I probably got in four or five more days. I remember the weather turned and they may have even migrated. There was a lot of snow up there by the time I got done. And uh, so anyways... There's two of them right there. And I can tell you more about big bucks that have gotten away because I didn't move slow. So that's why I think moving in deer country is a technique and you should too. So be careful out there. I hope this was helpful today. We'll talk to you guys soon. Thanks for tuning in.